Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. All right, this is long overdue. In fact, the title of the email that I sent to this guest asking him to come on the show somewhat sheepishly uh, was long overdue follow-up pod because uh, lots of people have been asking for this. At the time when he was doing his greatest of all time rankings, he only uh, had done up until the top eight and we were going to have him on again. And then the playoffs started and it was a truncated off season for me with the wedding, but he's been kind enough to wait until now. Ben Taylor, how you doing, man? Good to be back. I, I, I'm worried I set the bar too high in, in the first go around. So uh, yeah, a lot to live up to today, I think. So you thought your pod was that good, huh? No, I didn't. <laughs> it was just the, the feedback. I was like, oh man, what have I done? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you what you did was leaving them wanting more by not having done those top eight. So uh, let me see here. Where, where do we want to start? Uh I think I want to, before we get into those top eight and those who have read uh, his series on backpicks.com know it already, but uh, we will get to that to be sure. But I, I wanted to start again, and we talked about this a little bit the first time, but it might be good since it's been, uh, oh, about six months now to just talk about what your methodology was. And if you want to really get into it, we, we talked about it more the first time, but it, you know, he does a lot of plus minus work and stuff that really hadn't been available before, especially for the guys uh, who were the pre-data ball era, as he calls it, 1997 is the first year we have plus minus data, but Ben goes back and is able to estimate that uh, from earlier on. Uh, But would an accurate summary of kind of your criteria maybe rather than your method be, if you started this guy's career the same year he came into the league, but he had average teammates around him for his career, how many championships? would you expect him to win and then basically you're ranking him uh, on that criteria is is that a a fair summary or or uh, is that too simple no almost I I think the only thing to adjust there is that it's not just average teammates so yeah you know interestingly when I started the process years ago of like thinking about it from this perspective the first calculations I did were with average teammates and at a certain point I got around when I when I sort of developed the full like corp that is championships over replacement players I said, okay, you have to look at how guys affect different teams, right? Because players aren't just being slotted on 500 clubs and then making them contenders or whatnot. So you look at the whole distribution of teams and, you know, some guys that means they're going to be on really good teams. Some guys are going to be on poor teams. And from that, essentially, I I say, what's the championship odds on a random team? And we can quibble about, you know, we can quibble about like how random it is, right? Because after a while, you can argue, well, it's not that random because they're going to try to try to build around the player. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. But but that was the idea. Well, and I guess that's interesting, too, because, you know, if you say average, yeah, it, random probably is, is a better way of saying it. But in some ways, it doesn't really matter, maybe, what your performance would be with average teammates, because there's just about right. nobody in average NBA history who, with average teammates, is going to win a championship. And if exactly. all we're talking about is, hey, if you, you know, what are your chances of winning a championship? So really, the better question, and this is one that you've done pioneering work on, is, all right, if you have good teammates, how good are you, right? How good is your team? Uh, right, and right. and so that really seems like w- more what the inquiry is uh, at this point. Right, and that's where the, the concept of portability or how well a guy's skills scale up as the team gets better, that, that's where that became such a critical issue. Because to your point, you, you almost essentially never win a title with poor teammates. It just doesn't happen. Okay, or average teammates, every once in a blue moon, you'll have a 2003 Tim Duncan or something. And they had a pretty good cast in terms of defense and and role players uh but but in general yeah. and they also had a pretty lucky run that, that year too yes yes chris weber getting hurt dirk Nowitzki getting hurt right right i mean there's just only a few instances in the last 30 or 40 years of teams of that quality winning so to your point it rarely happens and instead it's like okay how how are your how's your value going to be maintained as you play on better and better teams and that's really where the power of that idea came from it was looking at these distributions and saying like okay wait a second you can be the greatest floor raiser ever but you're still not getting close to winning a title so yeah that's that's the idea yeah and that's a concept that i think i had articulated intuitively on the show going back a a couple of years i talked about demarcus cousins for example as a guy who can get you from 25 to 40 wins or 20 to 35 wins but because of his usage and because of you know you he can get you from being the 25th best offense to the 15th best offense but because of his defensive limitations his usage his turnovers uh at that time he wasn't really as good of a shooter outside so he probably didn't fit as well with other players you really wonder about whether he could be a a guy who'd help and that's actually part of why i don't think he's going to help golden state that much this year uh because he kind of provides a weak link to attack defensively but you know those are some of the questions that you come into and then you know you have things like how well does he shoot when he's off the ball how well does he defend you know is he going to take away from others because you don't have to guard him when he doesn't have the ball in his hands questions like that really i think play into your list and it's one of the first lists i've seen i mean the only one that, that takes those into account um right yeah and the next thing i wanted to talk about too here is the idea of longevity versus peak that's something that we've been discussing a lot kevin pelton uh and uh royce webb when i had them on a couple of years ago we talked about that and how you weighed it and it seems like one of your thoughts here is that longevity may be just underrated in these discussions. Yeah, I, I think generally the, the the sort of rubrics we come up with intuitively to structure these things really shoot down longevity. Uh, I, I discuss it in the series postmortem, uh, sort of balancing some of the traditional views. And then when you actually start to lay out like where this value comes from, I think one of the easiest ways to see it is with these guys that play forever, Reggie Miller, John Stockton, Kareem, whatever. And it's like, yeah, there's still all-star level 
valuable players at the end of their career. When they retire, the team gets worse because you can't just automatically replace an all-star or yeah. even a sub-all, right? And I think that's where it gets lost in the shuffle is there's something in the way we want to simplify and kind of think about these players historically that allows us to say, okay, I'm only going to look at like his best five years or his eight-year prime. I've heard people say, I don't, I don't care about seasons where you're not an all-NBA player. And when you do that, you really, really start to minimize longevity on top of the fact that we may kind of, uh, even when we think about it, underrated intuitively. I think that's a lot of my research has led me to a place where it's like, man, it's hard to provide value for that 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, et cetera, year. Yeah. And maybe there's almost this feeling in our minds, which probably is not rational, that because those guys who play for so long, you know, Malone would be another guy there. We'll see where LeBron ends up. Uh, those guys who play for so long are outliers. It's almost like it's unfair to compare them to sort of the more normal player who is going to have maybe 10 great seasons. Um, right. So I, I think there's it's like, well, we don't really know how to do this. These guys don't really fit into the mold. And so, all right, we're just going to not really count those extra seasons and we'll just compare their best 10 seasons, these other guys' best 10 seasons. Right. And and I don't want to get too philosophical as I've known to do, but I think you're, you're hitting at, <laughs> right, you're hitting at this thing where it's like different people have different criteria, but they don't explicitly state it. And that's yeah. a very, that's a very human nature thing. It, it's not our job always to, to perfectly articulate our own criteria. But I think at the end of the day, people are comparing, doing a little bit of apples and oranges comparison sometimes where it's like someone when they talk about the greatest ever really does only mean at his best for some sustained period and and i i think i bring this up at the end of the series and like this idea of an eight-year rule or something like that it's like I, I care about how good you are when you are at your best but it can't be a fluke and after that everything else is a wash yeah you need enough seasons to kind of cement yourself into the consciousness and then of course there's also the bias of well you have to have really been in play off contention in the finals ideally winning championships to sort of again cement that impression into people's heads in a way that you know someone that we're going to talk a lot about today is Kevin Gar Garnett and you know he just wasn't there you know it was really only two three seasons two three seasons really in which he was in the conference finals or better in his career at his highest level and maybe even only two seasons 08 and 04 there so you know it, it becomes more difficult uh now one thing that you also articulated in that kind of wrap-up which to me seems a little bit at loggerheads with the idea of the longevity is this kind of exponential curve for great seasons that you know if you and i forget the exact name that you have just but you know if you're gonna say hey here's a guy who adds you know eight points per game to your team which would be you know just an unbelievable like all-time great season that having a guy like that versus having a guy who adds five points per game to your team the guy who's adding eight points per game to your team it's not a linear relationship with how you're how likely you are to win a championship uh you know from five to eight that you're much more likely if you have that eight player than if you have that five player right 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 it's i actually it's funny you pick five and eight i think off the top of my head five and eight are closer to double in distance so five is like near 18 or 20 percent and eight starts to get into like the high 30s yeah and that's like your that. chance of winning a championship in a given year if you have on a random player. yes on a random team exactly um um, so yeah, it, it's they're at odds, but they automatically balance each other. 
there's no sort of philosophical weighting that needs to take place. It's like, well, in this particular uh, set of criteria, five, whatever it is, five seasons of Reggie Miller equals one peak Bill Walton season or, or whatever it comes out to. Well, and also I think it does what you just said about your chances of winning a championship in a given year. I mean, so eight, basically, I mean, that'd be, you know, your best That's ever best. Michael Jordan yeah. season, you know, your 09 LeBron James, you know, maybe an early Kareem year or something like that. Uh, and even then you only have a 40% chance of winning a championship in a given year with, you know, one of the five best seasons of all time. You know, I, I think that's really important for this analysis for the people who, you know, obviously people on NBA Twitter dismiss the whole oh, rings, rings, rings. That's all that matters idea. But that's important to note that, you know, if you're even if you are playing at the greatest of all time level in an individual season, you probably if you're playing on a random team with random teammates only have about a 40 percent chance of winning a championship in that season. And if you're playing at a level which, you know, that plus five level, which is probably what maybe there's 40 seasons like that ever. Is that, is that accurate, maybe? Yeah, I mean, certainly probably more seasons, probably 20, I want to say 20 or 25 guys, I think, who probably have a, a peak in that range and then some of them have okay. multiple seasons of course yeah okay so so maybe there's 60 of those seasons or, or so but then you know the 60 greatest seasons in NBA history you only have a 20 percent chance of winning the championship uh, if you've got one of those guys on your team with uh, random talents um and right, you know yeah, 40, 40s even 40s on the high side yeah, um, yeah. I, I think I think the highest season I ended up with was in the low 30s and we'll, we'll obviously talk about who that is if we get to him um but you know it's it's there's some you know there's a range basically let's put it that way i i can't dogmatically say like the best season ever is 33.2 percent or something but it's in it's in that range 30 to 35 percent and if you're a little more liberal or someone someone was better than i give them credit for or something like that uh, you could be closer to 40 but i think the take home that you're trying to make especially with the rings crowd is that you can't just there used to be a saying when we were growing up right like michael jordan you could put him on any team and win a title and the evidence for that yeah, is any team overwhelmingly except- no <laughs> <laughs> Except yeah. half the half the Eastern Conference and uh, the yeah. bottom six teams and, in the and West. The, uh, the, the 1985 <laughs> through 1990 Chicago Bulls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well played, very well played. I, I th- one last one last note on rings, and, and I was remiss not to. I had a little section in in my book thinking basketball on rings, and and I was remiss to leave this out. I think rings would be a fantastic scientific measurement in terms of methodology if they ran the season like a hundred thousand times. Times, oh sure, and and they shuffled all the lineups. I think then if you had like one single metric that you wanted to hone in on, rings would tell you what you want to know. But because there's only one year and so few combinations, like the guys we're going to talk about today played with so few combinations of teammates, so you're kind of locked in. And rings doesn't really tell you much. All right, we, we got a lot more to get here with Ben, and we're going to do a home and home. So when I go on his show, we can talk about more of some of these philosophical things. But we got to get to that top eight and we will do so right after this i think it's been maybe like 20 years or so that bars have been popular but i've never really been a huge fan of them because you just don't know what they are you don't know what you're getting and they don't really taste that great either but rx bar now has changed the game by actually listing their ingredients right on the front of the packaging. And guess what? When you list your ingredients, you're going to do that with natural ingredients. And they use egg whites for protein. They use dates to bind nuts for texture and other delicious ingredients like unsweetened chocolate, real fruit, spices like sea salt or cinnamon, 
They're up to 14 flavors now. Mango, pineapple, chocolate chip, peanut butter, other seasonal flavors. They are gluten-free, soy-free, and free of artificial flavors and preservatives. If you want a breakfast on the go, pre-workout snack, or a little pick-me-up during those dog days at the office in the afternoon. They also just debuted a new RX nut butter as well. It's a single-serve packet, and it's got delicious, creamy nut butter, 9 grams of protein, and it comes in three flavors. Honey cinnamon peanut butter, peanut butter, and vanilla almond butter. Squeezable and spreadable, and pairs great with fruit, rice cakes, pretzels, or straight out of the pouch as well. It's definitely the best tasting of these bars that, that I have had. And you can feel good about it because it's all natural ingredients, no preservatives. And if you want to get started with them, go to the site rxbar, that's the letter R, the letter X, rxbar.com slash capspace. Easy to remember capspace. We talk about it all the time in the program. They'll get you 25% off your first order. That's rxbar.com slash capspace. And make sure you enter for the promo code capspace at checkout. rxbar.com slash capspace. Enter that promo code capspace at checkout. Let them know that you came from us. All right. So... Number eight on Ben's list is, uh, you know, obviously we didn't talk about him last time, is a player who I think would be much lower for most people. Pretty much any other list that I've seen has this guy, you know, probably the highest would be like 13th or 14th. And that's Kevin Garnett. So I'll give you the floor here to talk about why it is that you have him higher than anyone else when you consider that really, you know, as we just talked about when he was the engine of his team, you know, there were really only had two conference finals appearances, 04 and 08. I noticed you left out 2012 as a conference finals appearance as well. well and and, and 2010 for that matter. Yeah. Because I, I, I felt yeah. like by that point, offensively, he just, you know, was not anywhere after that injury in 09. He really just was nowhere near the same as an offensive player, though. Certainly defensively, he was awesome. But maybe that's something else we'll talk about, too, is, is the, uh, you know, that that a lot of people underrate defense. But uh, so that I mean, I assume that's reason number one, maybe because uh, he is one of the greatest defensive players of all time. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there and I've talked about this in the series. There's a tendency to underrate defense historically. He's one of the greatest defensive players ever. I think let me let me take a step back. Why is he so underrated from this perspective? Why why do I have him so much higher than sort of the traditional conventional approach? I would say that if we were to go in a time machine, go back 30 years to 1988, it's the dawn of unrestricted free agency. Uh, we, we're going to say, OK, the league is going to add a bunch more teams. And it's going to get international. We're going to add a bunch of players and expand the talent pool. What would a guy look like? What would be the criteria if we could go into that chemistry lab for a guy to be a great player, but be totally unrecognized as being a great player? (laughs) <laughs> I, I would say, I would say, okay, number one, he would have to play in a small market. The free agency rules would have to deter anyone from going to said small market. He would, as a player, excel in traditionally unmeasured areas like defense and, I don't know, passing or big man playmaking. Um, he would not be a 30 point per game scorer who jack shots relentlessly. And he would need to be in a terrible team situation filled with front office ineptitude. You know, maybe one of his teammates dies tragically and if he has any all-star teammates they have devastating injuries that end their career but does that sound like a fair prognostication for said player 
Yeah, and, and maybe also they uh, lose four out of five first-round draft picks uh, due to uh, league action uh, with uh, the Joe Smith saga right. as well, right? right. I, I mean, right. maybe that, that's – sorry, that was a little too specific for your, your construct there. But <laughs> but nonetheless, yeah, I, I mean, that's uh, that's a great way to put it. And, and I think that's the, the short of it. I, I think he checks every box for having this wild discrepancy between and, – and then, of course, to answer your original question, uh, what makes – him great a phenomenal passer one of the greatest defenders ever a versatile defender uh, I, I think i called him a, a t-cell watching him on film he's got this motor and i think the motor is underrated in terms of just how much energy he exerts uh, while he's on the court especially defensively and, and he was a good scorer so you have this guy who's a great balance between uh, good offensive player great defensive player he's got the longevity i mean people just overlook the traditional stuff with him because of all of the things I just mentioned with the team losing and the first round and missing the playoffs and they overlook like the guy made 15 all-star teams he's he's one of the only players ever to have defensive player of the year most valuable player um he's got a bunch more things I think he's got an all-star game MVP the, the list goes on and on in terms of the credentials like 25,000 points x number of thousands of assists and rebounds he's one of the only guys in that club so yeah it's just an incredible career well and also I mean this isn't really part of what your discussion is but a guy who really could have been really good in any era like in this era he could have been just an incredible center he probably would have gotten his range out to the three-point line which for whatever reason he never did I think perhaps due to stubbornness you know Tim Bontemps talks about how he used to drain threes during his Nets days uh you know in warm-ups but just would would never shoot him uh and you know also just his scalability is awesome right I mean because you can there are some guys you could say oh you know he had no talent around them but look what he did he he pushed this Minnesota team up to 50 wins you know but maybe that's just your your classic floor raiser as you would say but KG clearly as he showed in Boston and then just if you look at his skill set being a good passer being a, an excellent shooter uh obviously a, a great defensive player being a guy who doesn't really have any weaknesses I mean I think that's a big part of being you know a, a scalable player uh you know you he could fit in if he had just not gotten such a a terrible draw in terms of his teammates when it did come time to scale he would have been awesome there too had he had different teammates well it's interesting he he was developing a three-point shot the other thing is he came into the league so young right he was an all-star in his second year at at 19 to 20 years old and he was developing a three and he moved away from the three and just instead for the era became a pick and pop or spacing long two-point shooter And, and for the metrics that we have going back over 20 years now one of the best outside shooting big men ever uh you know, in the 80 percentile uh, for free throws. I forget where his career free throw percentage ended up, but a very just really good shooter. Uh, so, yeah, when you think about translating error, which isn't really my thing, it's like not hard to imagine that he could have a three point shot and extend that jumper out another foot or two. Um, go, go ahead. Yeah, there, there was a time I remember. I think they played like some preseason games in Japan. In Japan. In Japan. Was, yes. You remember this? Like, it was, oh, I mean, it was the, the first the first games. He was like bombing threes. Like people were like, oh, shit, he's going to like KG. He's getting a three now and then he just never shot him again basically after that it was, i think it was 99 i think it was uh 
after the lockout season, I, that was really when he was sort of put on my radar um, as as a guy who was like, OK, this guy is getting really, really good. And yeah, he was shooting threes in those games and then just went away from it. But I, I wanted to get to something else that you mentioned, which one of the biggest pieces of evidence for Garnett to me is what happened when he went to Boston. Oh, yeah, because and I and I speak about this in his profile, his value. So just just to level set for those who aren't aware, he's got really, really good box score stats. But then when you look at the plus minus stats, he's arguably the king. LeBron has put up really the only guy who's put up better numbers in the last 20 something years. And he does very well across the board, depending on how you triangulate his value. And so he did this in 2003 in uh, Minnesota with that team. 2004, they flipped the roster around a little bit. They bring in Sam Cassell and Latrell Sprewell on his last legs, even though he's still a big name. They they uh, get Irvin Johnson and Hassel to play big minutes as defensive fillers, and they kind of have a more balanced roster. Well, again, uh, there's a number of guys. I know private metrics that I've heard people talk about. They have 2004 as the best season ever. Uh, there's a lot of plus minus studies that have 2004 as the best season ever. By ever, I mean 20 something years that we have on record. Yeah. And then his numbers are still very good in Minnesota, but he goes to Boston and he kind of does it again with a totally new team. And the shocking thing to me, and this is where you get into this scalability idea, is he does it when there are concerns about, oh, there's only one ball. And it's like Pierce, Allen, all these other players, it didn't matter. He just fit right in, put out one of the best defensive seasons ever. And so he's got this history of doing it in different environments. And that's really, really important to me. Really impressive. Yeah. And obviously he had a a rotating cast around him in his early days in Minnesota. I think the biggest criticism of KG is... To me, is could he be the engine? Uh, you know, if he is your best offensive player, are you going to have like a great offense? Even the those Boston teams, I think that 08 team. You know, and granted they had like Rondo out there, uh, you know, who was not a good offense player certainly at that time, and I think has always been overrated. And Kendrick Perkins, you know, I mean, those are two guys in the starting lineup who are not going to help you much. But you know, I I can't remember where the offensive rankings were of some of those Minnesota teams. I, I'm guessing probably the 04 team was really good, uh, but. But generally, like if he's your number one guy, uh, are you going to does he make a great offense by himself the way some of these other guys in NBA history do? But of course, he does plenty of the other stuff, too. I mean, you and you can make the argument that, you know, at least in terms of offense, he's better on a great team as kind of a second banana. But he's certainly a first banana defensively. Uh, And I think another point that you've made, too, is that, you know, especially as guys get into the back ends of your career, it's kind of hard to find those second bananas those second bananas can add a lot to your championships because if you have a first banana you're not necessarily going to be able to win a championship unless you have those other guys around them and finding your Kevin Garnett or I mean this is or a Draymond Green or a Clay Thompson KG is obviously way better than those guys but those that's finding that specific mold of player who goes with your first banana can almost be as difficult at times we're, we're in I think total agreement on this one um, I, I think Garnett if you have him as your best offensive player you shouldn't expect a phenomenal offense you'll get a good offense and that's what the that's what the evidence shows on his teams but you ideally if you want to build a juggernaut you want a guy who's going to be a primary offensive engine have Garnett 
as your secondary guy. And then that carry, especially those post prime seasons, it's like, yeah, having having post prime Kevin Garnett as your second or third offensive play, best offensive player. That, that's a really good situation. Well, speaking of really good situations, let's move to Tim Duncan, who was uh, in many ways, uh, other than the small market, kind of the opposite. Uh, uh, you know, he was gestated into this amazing situation uh, in San Antonio. Certainly, he deserved a ton of credit. And you could say that San Antonio is probably luckier to have him than he was to have San Antonio. But nonetheless, he comes in. He's winning, I think, 56 games immediately. He's got David Robinson, who you know, I think was 15th. Uh, on your list, as I recall, and, you know, was still playing at a level probably higher than people appreciated uh, in those late 90s seasons. Uh, but uh, Duncan at seven, uh, I think maybe to start is why is he a little bit higher than Garnett? And, you know, I'll give you the floor again to just talk about what it was that made Tim Duncan so awesome to be at that type of level work. And I think some people wouldn't have him this high into the top 10, although I certainly would. Well, it's interesting. My little my little note next to Duncan on the list here is opposite situation of KGs, which is what you, <laughs> yeah. which is what you open with. Uh, but I also think that's what makes them to me. And I'm biased because I, I grew up and watched their careers. I, this is what makes them the greatest comparison in NBA history. There's so many similarities. There are some differences. And then the whole thing, at least for the bulk of their prime, took place in these opposite situations where where Minnesota is the poster child of ineptitude and San Antonio. I mean, I mean, what a franchise San Antonio Popovich and Robinson into Duncan and you know whatever it is 26 yeah. consecutive I mean it's incredible you, you, you're getting two Hall of Famers drafting you know 28th right. and 57th in uh right. you know 1999 and 2001 exactly and 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 so you know I, al- I always wonder like if you ran Duncan's career backwards what would the narrative be I don't mean the the teams from the last couple years I mean during his prime because because there was some issues in 2009 and 2008 as his prime ended. And in 2007, Tony Parker got the MVP of the finals, which is kind of like the cousin of Paul Pierce getting the MVP in 08, even though Garnett was clearly the best Celtic. Um, you go back to 2005, he really struggled from the floor against the Pistons. It, you know, we don't have to re- relive all the, the narrative stuff, but the way narratives build are fascinating. And these guys had these narratives build in opposite directions. The, I, I'm filibustering here because... I, the answer is, depending on the day, I don't know which one of these guys should be ranked higher. I, I, I think they're that close. I kind of like KG a, a little bit better, I think. I, I think he could translate over more. Well, I, I guess the, the only thing is that in an earlier era, you know, KG maybe couldn't have played center and Tim Duncan probably could have played center in, in any era. Although Tim couldn't have played power forward, you know, in this era. I, I, I realize you're not doing as much era comparison as I kind of like to do. I, I've got to add some kind of a value here on this show. So <laughs> well, uh, well, when you did, you're the expert. When, when, when you did the podcast a couple years ago, yeah. did you have, where did you have these guys? Oh man, I can't remember now at this point. I'd have to, that was like a two hour show. I'd, I should probably go back and listen to it. Uh, so, but I probably... Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, a two-hour show. <laughs> I probably, I, I think I probably had Duncan uh, 
higher. I mean, a lot of this too is that, and I think it's also interesting when you talk about the similarities between these guys, they both kind of had these long post primes where they're under it. And I think Duncan, because he was ranked so highly to begin with, you know, people were talking about him as the Spurs best player in kind of that second time period from 2011 to 2016 when he retired, you know, talking about him as the Spurs best player, even, you know, towards the end of that and maybe until Kawhi Leonard finally broke through when, you know, it was probably Tony Parker uh, by the end of that. And they right. had really more of an ensemble cast. You know, to me, Duncan was overrated, I felt, uh, by most people towards the end of his career, where KG probably was still underrated after he had that injury in 09 because, you know, Tim Duncan still would post up every once in a while and KG didn't really do as much of that. But, I, you know, I, I think KG, you know, I like him better as a defensive player, just a little bit more versatility, a little better jump shot, a little better free throw shooter, uh, you know, a better passer. And, and I think Duncan, a better post player, but I think maybe a little bit of an overrated post player, certainly a better rim protector uh, than KG. But uh, so I, I think just Garnett's, if they're similar value players, which I think most people would, uh, uh, well, not most people, but uh, we would probably <laughs> agree. You know, I, I like the additional versatility of KG just slightly more than I do Tim Duncan. I, I like that you can see how easy it is to have a conversation that turns into an argument with yourself about these two players. Yeah. You're like, well, you, you know, you, I like Duncan in the post, but then actually you don't really want to run your whole offense through Duncan. And then, well, you could run Duncan at center and he's stronger, but KG's more versatile and he's, you just, you go down that rabbit hole. Well, I, yeah, I think though it's time to move on and talk about another guy that you have higher. I think you're eight through five, all these guys you have a little bit higher. I mean, and I think probably the guys that you're higher than are Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. I mean, those are the guys who, because I think I had Magic at like either number four or number three uh, on my personal list. And my list, I think, was not as longevity focused uh, as yours, which, uh, and you're doing a little bit more of a numerically focused approach than I did. But yeah, I mean, so you've got KG, Duncan, and now Akeem Olajuwon. Shaq is your number five. You've got those big guys over Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. I think also there's just because Larry Bird and Magic Johnson are pruner players who had the ball in their hands they're just kind of sexier they're more in the consciousness uh and you know they played on those iconic teams too i think that's another reason why you know they get a boost uh, from a lot of people compared to the guys we're talking about but uh again i'll give you the floor here on uh, akeem Olajuwon, another fascinating player well, before I get to Akeem, yeah. I just want to sort of reiterate the sexiness thing here. Magic and Bird, uh, along with Jordan and LeBron and maybe a few other guys we can talk about later, they're really the only smalls who I think are in the conversation for greatest seasons ever. So it's not like I, I have a stance that views Magic and Bird in a really negative light. They just, neither of them have the longevity of these players. And in Magic's case, really quickly, it was the fact that he came into the league so young, it took him a couple years to kind to turn into Magic Johnson. He's just given a total pass for that, probably because yeah. of his ni- 1980s uh, game six. Yeah, it was just assumed that he was that good all the time because right. that one game, that's all people remember, especially when you go back to that time, there wasn't really much on TV. Right, right, right. No one remembers that he set the turnovers record in a game, the game before in game five. Um, but for Bird, same thing. Bird came in old. He was like 23 in his rookie season. And yeah, because he transferred he the cap- from Indi- Indiana to Indiana State and 
then he, you know, went through his senior year. So he was older. Yeah. Well, if you haven't read, uh, if the listeners haven't read Jackie McMullen's whole thing about how Bird got to Indiana State, and it's incredible. He like just didn't even want to play basketball at Indiana and hit away. And then it took him a while to get into the game formally. Um, and then so he only had, you know, nine, eight or nine great years under his belt. So they, they I think, traditionally just get automatically uh, lumped into the top four, five, six, seven players. And when you stack it up this way, it's these bigs that and I say, I think in the postmortem, I talk about how height ages really well. And if we get to Kareem, we can we can reiterate that. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, all these bigs here. So Hakeem, uh, Hakeem had tremendous longevity that really wasn't talked about. And in a way, he was the Garnett before Garnett, not quite as extreme, but he was saddled in a ridiculously bad situation in Houston. If I can rant about this for a second, um, you're looking at a team that was not very good at any point in time and yet made no key transactional moves for years. They did, they did nothing. They brought no one in through the draft. No, they're, they're, it was before unrestricted free agency for a couple of those years. They had players getting suspended for drugs. Uh, the Twin Tower hopeful was Ralph Sampson, and his his career was completely curtailed by injury. Uh, Don Chaney, the, the greatest coach of the year ever, I think, Don Chaney. Every time I watch a game from that season, I'm like, what is Don Chaney doing? And then you go, oh, he won coach of the year. I I don't know what games yeah. they were watching. He, he, <laughs> he and Sam Mitchell in, what was it, 2007, the Raptors? That's probably the Raptors those season, would be yeah. my two. Yeah. yeah. Man. Um, so there's a lot there with Hakeem that I think suppresses him in the general conversation. But he's he's really this guy out of all of these guys that we're going to talk about today. That when I look at him as a player, I look at his situation, you know, he wasn't traded. He didn't have a lot of roster turnover. It's like, wow, it's possible that he was even better than I'm giving him credit for. But it's also possible that he was too rigid. Like it's it's hard to give players credit for personalities transferring well. Like if he was put in a different situation, it's possible that he would have said, okay, no, I still need to get my touches. I still need to get my 30 points a game. Can we please have a four out system with a bunch of shooters so you can throw it into me and I can kick it out to them? Like there's just a lot of uncertainty around Olajuwon. Yeah, and it's interesting because his best years, 94 and 95, at least in the playoffs, those the, the years that they won, of course, uh, number one, they did kind of have those systems. But number two, you know, what was he, like 30 and 31 there or 29 and 30? Usually you would expect that a guy's prime years would be before that. So you would think, oh, he was probably better during those times. But, you know, again, they weren't really contending, you know, really until 1993. Again, after that 86 uh, finals appearance, which was such a surprise so you you wonder of whether you know did he get better or was he just this good the whole time yeah and there's a lot of truth in terms of um him being really good for a number of years uh there's l- let me let me just speak to something there about the peak um i think it's pretty clear that his best season was 1993 that was he he improved his playmaking he made a concerted effort to pass more uh in interviews he talks about trusting his teammates and he still has the defensive motor i think his defensive peak was probably 89 or 90 physically he was still just an, a monster uh, but a lot of guys have a late offensive peak Nate like Nowitzki in 11 or yeah. even Bird's best offensive season was probably 87 or 88 you see this pattern a lot with LeBron right now you know I'm not going to say it's his offensive peak but the offensive game evolves you learn the patterns you learn the angles your jumper gets polished and what goes is your defense and I don't think Hakeem was nearly the defender in 1995 that he was say in 80 or 90. But man, that offensive game was dialed in by then. And that's that's the indelible impression that people have. Akeem absolutely faking David Robinson out of his job. Yeah. And I think it, 
maybe as a big as well, it's easier where you're you're not as reliant on athleticism if you're more of a have more of a skill game uh, the way Akeem at least towards the end did. You know that unblockable fadeaway jumper going to the baseline that he could get off at any time. The hook shot, the, all the the up and unders where he never traveled once. Uh, <laughs> um, well, yeah, he had those for years. That was the that was one yeah. of the things that jumped out to me in terms of doing film study on those '80s seasons. It's like there's a there's a playoff series in I want to say '87 maybe against was, Seattle. Oh yeah, when he had like you know 47 points 40, and 29 yeah, yeah. rebounds in one of those games. Yeah, it's his his averages for the series ended up like 40 and 20 or something comical. But he he kind of had that offensive game since the middle of the '80s. Yeah, and I think an interesting thing that that you talked about with him is. Again, you know, he didn't really play with the other great players. You know, Drexler came in, Barkley at the end, then all the way back in, in 99, Pippen. But those guys were not really, you know, on the level of a second true superstar as late in their careers as they came in to play with him. And he also wasn't necessarily the same guy by that point. But yeah, you wonder about the scalability that he has because he never really even had that efficient of seasons. But, uh, and this is something we haven't talked about enough, we should probably talk about on your show is, you know, how much you're waiting regularly regular season versus playoffs because he just couldn't be stopped you know quote quote unquote stopped one-on-one and you know it was really hard well he wasn't incredibly efficient he's able to hit these really difficult shots and do that at a solid efficiency rate and so you got to really you know if you really want to stop him you have to double team him and that opens things up and so you know he's going to play well in a playoff situation so you've got on one hand you know a game that transports well into that playoff crucible but on the other hand he's not incredibly efficient and you know not really an outside shooter you know he's got to be down there on the low block taking up space for other guys so you wonder about his scalability at the same time the the playoff thing is a great point uh maybe we should table it but yes a a huge component with Hakeem needless to say is that if you sized up his regular season metrics he would be a rung lower and some of the stuff he's able to do in the postseason what his skill set sort of affords itself to is this ability to just barbecue different defenses in the playoffs and I think he sustains a lot of offensive value there but and there's still a but he never played on a great team he never played with great offensive teammates so there there is that lingering question mark in the front of my mind like how how would he translate offensively how much value would he sustain if you put him in one of these good situations like the 80s juggernauts had or whatnot time was you would have to pay thousands and thousands of dollars to get personalized instruction from any teacher not to mention an incredible master like Gordon Ramsay or Annie Leibovitz but now with technology and with master class you can take online classes taught by the best in the world I've actually done the Stephen Curry shooting class that one is awesome the quality of just the video is fantastic. Cinematic production quality, on-demand lessons, and you can only find this content on Masterclass. They've got now over 35 masters. Malcolm Gladwell on writing, Ron Howard directing, astronaut Chris Hadfield, and a ton more. New classes are always being added, and Masterclass is just a great way to either develop your passion or work on your career. Bob Woodward on investigative journalism. Yeah, might want to hear from him. He uh, just came out with a new book in which he put those skills to use. 
And Dunked On listeners can unlock access to every single masterclass for a year right now at the URL masterclass.com slash capspace. That's masterclass.com slash capspace. Unlimited access to over 35 world-class masters, all for one surprisingly low annual price. That's masterclass.com slash capspace. Find out what that surprisingly low price is at masterclass.com slash capspace and learn from the best in the world and let them know with that slash capspace URL that you came from us. Well, another guy, Shaq, who, you know, you wouldn't say necessarily is that portable. I actually, you know, you've got him at five. I want to talk about his defense first. What did you find about him defensively? Because, you know, he is the center. He's got to be the anchor of your defense. Not a guy I recall who played on a lot of great defenses, certainly in the regular season. No, he didn't. Uh, it's it's categorically his weakness. I mean, that's the that's the wart with Shaq. He was one of the few bigs ever who was a legit offensive juggernaut on that side. And when you look at his defense, first thing that jumps out is his pick and roll coverage. He does not like to come out to the perimeter, especially as his career moved on. He's got a lot of poor instincts that he brought into the league. He, he would bite on up fakes. Uh, he was foul prone when he was younger. And he didn't have the greatest reaction time. You know, I talked about Garnett earlier as a as a T-cell, just bouncing around, ready to jump on invaders. Shaq is more kind of like a, a bear uh, and not in the Draymond Green nickname sense. Like if he's in the lane and you come at him, he's big, he's long, he'll block shots, he's physical, he'll grab a bunch of boards. And that's where his value comes from. But he's not super mobile. Uh, he got lazy at certain points in his career. And, and I think in many ways, there's a relationship between his condition conditioning, his defensive exertion, and his overall value, which probably prevented him from being in the conversation for greatest player of all time. Yeah, although he still was, was pretty damn good. He's still pretty it? good. And, <laughs> and I mean, I think people just forget how absolutely unstoppable he was during his prime and just that there was no way to deal with him. And then, you know, the other team, like you couldn't get away with going small against him. Although I think actually more teams should have just tried that and just said, hey, you know what? We're not going to stop this guy anyway. So why don't we just go small and we're just accept that we're going to have to double team him and then let's just kick his ass in the other end. Like teams didn't really seem to ever try that. It was always like, all right, well, let's throw like Chris Dudley or Scott Pollard out here because like, you know, our primary center is in foul trouble as opposed to really, you know, trying to spread the floor against him and then just accept that you're going to have to double team. I think that's something that teams should just do more of anyway is like instead of just, all right, we're going to throw we, we got to get this guy out here who's going to be an offensive liability because, you know, we need someone to guard this guy. But you're double teaming anyway, so why not just guard him with a worse player to begin with if you're going to double team? But anyway, that's, that's an aside. So, but he, yeah, go so ahead. Do you, do, you, do you remember the 2001 finals? Larry Brown tried that. Do you remember this? No, I, 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 I that was actually a period where I was in college. I kind of wasn't paying as much attention. Like, I don't really remember. And also just because, like, I wasn't interested in those finals because I just knew that the Lakers were going to win. The East was so... Like, I remember the Western Conference playoffs from those years much better than I do the finals because it was just... I I watched the 2000 finals. That was actually competitive. But uh, from uh, 01 and and 02 were just... I knew there were going to be massacres and I had other stuff to do at that point. There should be a a governing internet body somewhere that gives you points for admitting you didn't watch basketball as closely during a period. I I feel like that's a thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's got to be a thing. Um, Anyway, the point I was going to make there was Larry Brown tried... uh, 
I never forgot it. And you can still find the, I went and looked at how long he played the, the lineup for at some point. He ran to Kembe Mutombo with four wings for like eight, I think it was 18 minutes in the first two games in LA. So he had, he had Iverson, Raja Bell, Aaron McKee, and Eric Snow. And they ran this college style lineup at the time. That's what it was kind of looked at as. Uh, and they broke even for those 18 minutes. And I don't know how many minutes Shaq was on the bench for, but I, I kind of had the same idea. Like you are in over your head against this guy. He at his peak was completely unstoppable. Uh, to your point, he employed like 15 or 20 Western Conference centers it, 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 during the 2000s, guys that just had to come in and like lean on him and foul him. But that wasn't really an effective strategy. Yeah. So why not, le- why not lean into the skid, go the other way? And I, I'm going to point to that 18 minutes of that 18 minute sample size as evidence that it could have been a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even then, you know, they had Mutombo out there as well. Uh, you know, I, mean, I wouldn't have said, hey, don't you know play all six five guys but you know and that you know maybe they could have gone with like george lynch at center on that team or something and and, right and just said hey you know we're gonna double and and just try and be quick that that strategy gets a lot easier under the modern rules too which i actually came in i think that year i can't remember there's oh one or oh two uh finals that those zone rules first came in but obviously yeah it took teams a while to kind of adjust to that um all right i guess we, we we Maybe, you know what we should probably do? Maybe we can, you know, we'll talk kind of more about these, you know, some of the system stuff, but also maybe we can just table the LeBron versus Jordan discussion for your show because we're we're already like almost an hour in here. So we should probably just get through the, the rest of these guys. Uh, but, you know, I, I mean, we could spend probably an entire podcast just on Jordan versus LeBron, which would be a lot of fun. But uh, Bill Russell, number four, again, a, a guy who you have him higher than I did. I think part of that is that I still maintain a little bit that, you know, offense is more important than defense, uh, just because I think that the value of a replacement on offense is a little bit higher than on defense. Um, But, you know, if you're going to weight those equally, Bill Russell, as I talked about on the show with uh, Kevin Pelton and and Royce Webb, you know, basically created the number one defense and it wasn't just the number one defense it was the number one defense like by a mile way more of an outlier when in in an era as you've noted because there were so few teams it was really difficult to create separation from the rest of the league uh so bill russell at number four i mean i think some people would have him there but you know your argument isn't like the rings argument that's you know very unnuanced that a lot of people have it's what is your argument then for having him at, at four well, he's probably the greatest defensive player ever. Yeah. And and his sustained defensive value is, was there from day one, and it was there till he left. Now, did he peak in the early and mid-60s and then come down as he aged? Absolutely. But that team was a defensive juggernaut, and they were a defensive juggernaut through most of his career. And when he left, that completely went away. That's, that's a really broad stroke argument. But when you dive into something deeper, one of the things I've done this summer is develop develop a box plus minus version that goes back to 1952. And, you know, I've been trying to look at that to see what the insights are to the Celtics team. And it's kind of echoing the same stuff uh, that we've expected or had before then. So, for instance, defensively, Russell's box plus minus back then is right up there with the guys today or ahead of them, depending on how you look at the minutes or whatever. So the short of it is you've got a decent offensive center, good passer later in his career. 
He was a decent offensive player when he was younger and like an all-time level defender. And no, today I don't, I, I agree with you. Today, I think all the data shows that there's an asymmetry between offensive value and defensive value. Offensive value is a little more important. The top offensive players are a little better, but that's overstated all the time, Nate. Like, yeah. I, I have I have some study at the end of the series that compares them. And the difference between the best offensive players and the best defensive players is not necessarily what most people probably think it is. If the best offensive guys, say, are six points better than average, the best defensive guys are like four and a half or something. So Russell, in his time before the three-point shot, playing 44 minutes a game, being a revolutionary, he was really the first guy to do that. He, he, he was a shot-blocking machine. Uh, he was horizontal as well. He was cerebral uh, that that that's what puts him this is a, a little bit of, of a, a non sequitur for what we've been talking about but how good were his teammates during those I mean there's all these hall of famers that he played with but you wonder whether some of them just became hall of famers because they were on a lot of championship teams how good were those guys uh, that he was with well I, I a lot of them were hall of famers because they played with Bill Russell um, a lot of guys back then were hall of famers because they get the the pioneer boost you know there's eight teams in the league and there's still 24 guys on the all-star team so you make three four five all-stars and you have a sexy nickname like easy ed mccauley and uh and you can get there now now i mentioned easy ed mccauley he he was on the team before russell he was part of the russell trade i believe that brought him in as a rookie so they had koozie uh bill Sharman, and mccauley those were really good offensive players in 1956 so he he comes to this team that was actually a pretty good offensive team when he gets there in 57 but koozie and Sharman start to get old by 1966 61, like Sam Jones is really the best offensive guy. And it, it takes a few years before they have other, you know, good offensive players, uh, especially for an era where there's eight or nine teams. Havelcheck didn't really become Havelcheck until later in the 60s. They brought in Bailey Howell in the last couple of years. Um, but Sam Jones was the guy. And then all these other guys after Kuzi and Sharman left were def- defensive guys. They were what we'd think of as like as like the three and D guys of the, you know, early Spurs teams or something. It was Casey Jones, good defensive player. Satch Sanders was getting a lot of minutes at forward. Um, Tommy Heinsohn's a big name, but he was he was just kind of a gunner for a number of years. It, it was built and structured more like a traditional team than we think of looking back at all the Hall of Famers. Yeah, that's. Uh... That's interesting. And part of the reason that I downgraded Russell a little bit was that their offenses weren't any good, you know, during a lot of that period. Uh, You know, they were very defensive oriented teams. And so, you know, again, without having gone back and watched a ton of his games, my assumption was, well, you know, how good could he he have really been uh, as an offensive player? And what's your reaction to that? Well, do you want to play Time Machine? You mean if in a more modern game? No, no. I mean, just at the time, you know, it seemed like he was pretty inefficient um, and, you know, wasn't really able to shoot outside of two feet. Um, So (laughs) slightly more than two. Yeah. Um, Okay. I mean, well, all right. If he's going up for like these lefty hook shots from like six feet away, I mean, that's like, you know, what was that? A 35% shot or something back then? Although I don't know that that shot was crazy. Yeah. For those who haven't seen old basketball, it was just totally normal to take lefty and righty sweeping hooks within like 
15 feet of the basket and the shot was literally phased out across the entire league but if you go watch old film you'll you'll see these shots they're they're really wild ideas well Um, i mean and i just when you think about the fact that even when they're running an incredible amount back then you know 120 125 possessions a game and they're incredibly inefficient to think about like what their half court efficiency must have been like back then i mean you just see these shots where they just like you know turn for a 15 foot hook shot and just like half the time they just only hit the backboard like it or they're just like you know running along the lane line and then just throw up this hook shot that like i mean and try and go off the backwards like it's just impossible to have any touch uh i mean they're probably shooting like in the low 30s in the half court i would guess as considering how much they ran and that they're still were only shooting you know 40 percent as a league at that time and you know what happened you analytics guys came along and ruined the game (laughs) yeah yeah that's right no more sweeping 30 foot shots <laughs> well, I mean, and that uh, uh, we should talk sorry, about this ahead. too. I mean, uh, it's probably uh, enough on Russell for now, just because we're kind of limited in time. But uh, the fact that Kareem was able to make that sky hook at like the percentage that he did. I mean, it, you linked to this. I thought it was really interesting. A guy who went through, I think it was the 1983 playoffs and just took a look at like what percentage Kareem was shooting on those sky hooks. And it was like, it was definitely like high forties, at least even maybe even low fifties, you know, in the playoffs. I think it was in the fifties. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Against like playoff defense. And, and, you know, that was only a couple of series, but uh, in his analysis, so he could have just been hot then. But I mean, that's like to make that shot as a, a seven listed as seven two many said he was taller than that uh unblockable shot off of one foot from like 14 feet away from the basket to make that at 50 percent is just like it's ridiculous and, and the fact that like no one else has ever been able to come close to making a shot like that at that kind of a percentage is just unbelievable I, I think because he was so good right away, so good in college, uh, so good when he got into the league, uh, the the all of the politics around changing his name, his his personality, the way he was with the media. I, I think what gets completely undersold about Kareem is the fact that he's this like seven two seven three giant who was also crazy graceful and fluid and cerebral, and so he's just like, all right, I got this shot that's completely unstoppable, and I can build my entire offensive repertoire around it and apparently i can do it until i'm about 40 years old and and this like size and and essentially athleticism and fluidity that he had for so many years if you go back and watch him when he was younger it pops but we just don't talk about him like he's one of the like great freak athletes but look i was i was covering a game in 2009 at the staples center and i was in the media room and someone stepped on my like the back of my heel as they were walking by me and i turn around and i'm about 6263 i would be listed at 64 in shoes or something like that i turn around i'm looking at this belly button i'm like wait why am i looking at a belly button i look up it's kareem he's like 13 and a half feet tall it it it's completely undersold yeah and I mean, that's I, my that's my Kareem stepping on me story. <laughs> Everyone has one. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's really remarkable. And I think just so we have it, by the way, LeBron at three. Uh, and this was actually before last year's playoffs. Uh, and I think it was your prediction that LeBron would soon surpass Jordan. And then same thing, uh, Jordan at two and Kareem at one. Uh, with the notation, I think, you did you say that both Jordan and LeBron at higher peaks than uh, Kareem Abdul-Montana? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, yeah. Make, to make a Save by the Bell reference there that, that we did before the show started. Not that we were sitting around like talking about Save by the Bell endlessly. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, it was only like three minutes. Um, yeah, yeah. They had higher peaks. LeBron, after his 18 season, I moved up to number two. Mm. And I think his his trajectory, he, he's, he's looking like he's going to have enough longevity maybe to get to Kareem. But we can discuss that uh, in, in the next segment of this when we talk about LeBron and, and Jordan. Yeah, and I will uh, apply my completely unbiased analysis, having grown up in Chicago in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, so people can look forward to that I'm, I'm looking forward to that i think the thing that most people don't realize about this series is how weird it was for me to put certain numbers next to certain names like even just thinking like oh i now have jordan third that just feels weird yeah and, and i think there's like right there's like the scientist in you that's trying to uh be true to the method but then there's also the guy who grew up watching i mean i didn't miss a bulls game once nba league pass was around so uh, it, it's it's strange but we can talk about that in the next installment yeah i, I mean and i do think you know the acknowledgement maybe that Jordan had the highest peak is still, you know, I think that might uh, mollify some of the people who are just up in arms about that and just say, hey, you know what? Like he played essentially from 85 to 98 and he missed three seasons during that, but the 86 with the foot and then, uh, you know, 94 and 95 essentially. So, you know, we're really only talking about a 10 year career and LeBron, his longevity is unbelievable. The one thing that I, and this will be my last comment on this, but, you know, I, I said, when people were talking about oh LeBron is as good as Jordan you know when when he was kind of finishing up with the heat he would would have been 30 I'm like all right let's see where he's at when he's 34 or 35 because Jordan to me easily you know the best 34 year old the best 35 year old ever you know I'm still playing at a level that's best player in the league by that point I'm like well that's pretty much unprecedented maybe Kareem did it a little bit but I you know I didn't think that Kareem was on the same level as Jordan you know what, what he was doing with those Bulls teams in the finals you know in 1998 uh so and now LeBron at age 34 was at that level last playoffs and so you know that's why it becomes so much more of a discussion for me I think it's a, a very legitimate one um but Kareem still higher than those guys to you uh and I mean, how good was he I mean we know that he was basically the best player in the league for pretty much every year in the 70s uh, you know maybe you could say 77 you know he, he got beaten by Walton although he had a pretty good playoffs in 77 had uh, I think one year where he didn't make the all-star team because he broke his hand punching Kent Benson yeah um yep. but you know until probably you know 1980 you know he's got a 10-year run as the best guy in the league and then it, into that later point during those Lakers years how good is he during that period because that that's really the period where you know you're saying because of these years that's why he's better than Jordan and LeBron at this point. I, I think what's crazy, you you could say that he still kind of had that prime, late prime thing going until like 1982. And then 83, 84, 85, 86, he still has, especially for that era, the way the game was played, he still has some de defensive value with his shot blocking and his length. That's this whole like height ages really well thing. And so even though he can't move as well, he's still able to play a very similar role in the lane, which is not to say he's an all-league defender, but he didn't become a liability. He still got some value. Yeah, well, and people killed side, his his defensive rebounding in that period, like the 83 finals. You know, he really got eaten up by Moses Malone. That's something that Moses, people talked yeah. about. And that was, that was an era where defensive rebounding for a center was much more important than it became later on. 
Right, but you also need to use context yeah. when rebounding numbers maybe more than like any other numbers get fuzzy. And when you've got the early Lakers in the 80s had a massive, once they had Rambis and Mark Landsberger, Magic rebounding from his position, like that was a rebounding team around Kareem. They didn't need that version of Kareem yeah. to grab 12 boards a game. So, um, so you have that on the defensive side. And then offensively, what's crazy when you watch tape is like you can't even figure out what year it is sometimes. You're just like, oh, they throw it into Kareem. He's this specialized half-court weapon when the Showtime Lakers aren't running. And Kareem just kills people with the skyhook. And you're like, oh, is it 1986? Is it 1980? Is he 40? Is he 41? So he's able to maintain this sort of like all-star level of offensive play. I think that's the, the simplest way to describe it on a pod uh, for a number of those years into year like 17, 18-ish, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, and even, you know, the 1985 finals, think of all the incredible players who are on the floor in that finals and he was the best player on the floor at age I think 38 uh in 1985 you know not playing at quite the level to me of like you know Jordan were in the 98 finals although he's three years older because you know Jordan was really the only guy causing the Bulls offense to work at that point and they obviously had a lot of other options at that point but still you know the best player on the floor and then I think part of maybe why Kareem's performance in the 80s it gets a little underrated is because he had kind of these high profile failures in some pretty spectacular losses for the Lakers against other younger big men Malone in 1983 1986 against Samson and Elijah where you know he probably was not as good as those guys in those series and if you're talking right. about okay all right now he's not the best center in the league he's getting beaten up by these guys you're probably missing well okay there's still you know 27 centers in the league that he doesn't have that problem against and then you know the fact that it still has value to be the third or fourth best center in the league in a center heavy era uh going into you know your 40s exactly i mean i've heard that comparison it's like peak moses malone whatever that is 1983 couldn't be too far off from it and oh peak moses malone uh, you know destroyed kareem on the glass first of all the game is more than just one-on-one -on -one, but oh okay so he's not as good as peak moses malone in his 14th season and the same kind of thing in 86 he's still a really good weapon but trying to handle Olajuwon and Sampson, uh, okay, that's that's not the biggest black eye ever. I think a lot of what happened, you know, what we talked about earlier on the show with Garnett and Olajuwon, Kareem went through some of that himself in Milwaukee, when he went to LA, missing the playoffs a couple years in a row, uh, the team falling short of ridiculous expectations. Um, even in Milwaukee, when Oscar Robertson left, you know, they just did not have a good year, but he also broke his hand. They were much better when he played. He, he does well in all of these kinds of historical estimations of plus minus and everything with the box score. So there's just a lot of there was a lot of narrative, I think, that was brewing against him in those years. And, and the last thing I'll say there on the 70s is, boy, for a long time before I really went back and looked, I thought, you know, I think I'd rather have a Walton type in like 77, 78 uh, than Kareem. And I, I've done basically a complete 180 on that. Walton's still great, but I think Walton gets this like boost that we give guys, uh, Derek Rose, Penny Hardaway, uh, even guys like Len Bias who never get to never get to play. We, we give, you know, he had one or two great years and we're just like, oh, he he must have been one of the all time level players. Yeah. And it's like, eh, yeah, eh, I, I've railed I about that. So before. sure that it definitely is like like you just like because you want to like we, especially now when there's like all this like film and data like you still want to find a way to nostalgicize things to be like oh there was this unknown guy that like oh man you know you 
if just if, if this did happen, like the, like the thrill of the unknown almost makes you overrate those players. Like, oh, what they could right, have, right. what this guy would have been, man. Let me tell you, you know, what this guy would have been if only blah, blah, blah. And then and then the highlight reel makes it worse. Like there was one about Grant Hill recently when he got into the Hall of Fame. Grant Hill was great when he was healthy. Like he was legit. He, he's one of those kind of guys who's probably, five. I think, underrated how good he was yeah. during the healthy period uh, because right, he wasn't right, right. really but, on a good team at that point. Right. But then what happens sometimes is is people who forgot or never got to see this guy play might see a highlight. And then immediately you have like, oh, so like he could have been better than Jordan. <laughs> it's like Len Bias was better than jordan uh there's there's a lot to get there so yeah and i think another reason maybe why and again i I don't think i agree with you as far as like i don't know that i would have uh kareem or jordan uh, or or, sorry kareem above lebron or or jordan personally uh but you know so love when we talk about we can talk about that more but uh, at another time but um you know i think the fact that kareem really only won one title quote unquote on his own you know and, and that i think a lot of people think of those titles that the lakers won as magic's titles and you know kareem didn't play in that clinching game in 1980 again you know magic wasn't that good those years but he did have that one unbelievable game uh you know the 1982 uh i think magic actually won finals mvp in 1982 if, if i'm not mistaken um and so i think uh, there's an idea that those are magic john titles when you know that's probably not really accurate and then you talk about well all right the, those bucks teams right that 72 bucks teams is one of the greatest teams of all time but they went up against a greater team and uh barely lost uh at least in terms of the point differential over the series to that 72 lakers right. team 71 bucks team was was unbelievable 74 you know they lose a really hard fought series to boston then he gets traded to the lakers and you know good luck naming any of his teammates uh, for those first couple of years <laughs> in la so uh um, you mean you're not a Don Ford Don Ford fan club member? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I think that the fact that he those his best years really are almost kind of lost and there's this okay yeah he got his one in 71 and then you know he came in and uh you know but it took magic joining him before he was able to win another one and so you know how good could he have really been during those times right i I mean it's a great uh rundown you just gave because he actually played 71 72 74 he played on these monster teams then he and again we talked about this earlier with garnett with diversity of circumstance then he goes to la and 77 and he dragged that team talk about floor raising i mean they played at like a 50 53 win pace something like that um you know made some movement in the playoffs and and to your point just did not have a great team around him and then when magic and fresh blood came in he was clearly the best team in 1980 uh, best player on that team in 1980 for my money still the best player on that team in 1982 that's a lot of really really good teams in the finals or or winning championships or, um, you know, having incredible results that I think historically is just put in a black box and called the 70s and wrapped up and thrown away by most folks. Yeah. And then also there's this idea that when they played the Blazers, that Walton really killed him in that series. I mean, that's that's what people say. I haven't gone back and watched that series. Um, I don't know if you have. Have you seen any of that 77 West finals? Was Walton just kicking his yeah. ass? No, 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 no. It was it, Walton, this, uh, the, you know, I, I'm I'm. Uh, 
uh, close to jumping into Walton's voice because every time Walton comes <laughs> up, I <laughs> just can't help myself. But he, he talks about like how Kareem dragged him up and down the court, which is a bit of an exaggeration. But uh, no, no I th- yeah, there, it's, well, it's that, a- that's from Airplane, right? <laughs> he had to drag, drag <laughs> yeah. Walton and Lanier up and down the court for 48 minutes a night. Well, there's some truth to it. Uh, they, they look, they're both great players that had a great series, but um, no, Jabbar, Jabbar gets his a lot. Um, Walton does his thing, but Walton's not going to score 30 a night like Kareem was. Yeah. And I would not classify that at all as, as Walton killing him. All right. Well, I, I think we, we've uh, done as much as we can here today, but uh, Ben site backpicks.com. And uh, he's also started a podcast and a uh, associated podcast patreon so uh, tell us about that a little bit before we depart um yeah patreon is uh really the idea was to continue to create content in a, in a multimedia fashion wanted to try a podcast and the patreon really just supports the podcast gives me time equipment etc uh to be able to riff off i, I it's still very experimental every show is kind of led with a with a different voice um interestingly enough the next podcast is about the lakers and it's introduced by bill walton so awesome B- bill is like one of the nicest men uh that i've ever met he really is is uh an incredible guy i, I hung out with him for an evening uh, just because a buddy of mine is a, was a potentially uh gonna buy season tickets and so they like put bill walton in touch with him as just like a way to uh you know kind of schmooze with him a little bit and so uh got to spend a night watching a game with bill it was pretty fun wow that that sounds better than getting stepped on by kareem <laughs> Well, everyone has a watching a game with Bill Walton story, except you, apparently. Uh, uh, yes, no, I would, love to, I would love to get one of those. All right, man. Well, thanks. This was a, a ton of fun, and I can't wait to get into some more of these uh, discussions. I mean, we could obviously talk about this for, for 10 hours, and uh, maybe over the next couple of years we can. Uh, but th- this is great, and uh, looking forward to talking again soon. Appreciate it. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on. I, I, I hope it was as fun as the first go around for people. We got another day of NBA action, so it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every night a watch party only on FanDuel. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.